1: today I'm going to continue our discourse on the book of Daniel and I'm going to deal with Daniel chapter 9. That's why we have these ugly blackboards. Today we're going to show you infallible proofs that Jesus is the Messiah. Also we will comment on the greatest time prophecy in the Bible and that is the prophecy of the 2,300 days. You'll remember last week when we studied from Daniel chapter 8, the Bible said after 2,300 days, and we believe these are prophetic days, uh, then there would be the vindication of the sanctuary and the restoration of truth in these last days. And you'll remember last week as we were talking from Daniel 8, that at the end of the vision, Uh, The prophet said the vision of the days is true but nobody could understand it. And therefore Daniel 9 is given to complete the understanding of the the prophecy of Daniel 8. We're going to refer today also to the final proclamation of the everlasting gospel. We're going to mention the pre-advent judgment and the setting up of the eschatological kingdom. We will also ask and answer... The searching pertinent question, how can a sinner stand righteous in the sight of a holy God? And is there hope for me? And is there hope for you? So please notice Daniel 9 verses 1 and 2. This is a big chapter and we will have to move and go through it as fast as we can without losing the essence. Daniel 9 verse 1 and 2 and please notice it in the word. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler, a ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. It is significant to note that Daniel 9 is given some 10 or 12 years After Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8 you have the prophet praying for understanding. Telling God I do not understand this prophecy. Therefore come quickly and help me. And God took 10 or 12 years to come and answer his prayers. Let me tell you this. God does not always seem to be the God of the urgent. God doesn't always seem to be in a great hurry. Because God's time is always perfect. And so, if there are some here today, you've been praying that God will answer your prayers and the time just seems to drag. Remember, God's time is always the best time and God knows what He is doing. Would you please? And we don't, generally speaking. Verse 2 says. Look at it again. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So this is in the context of the desolation of the city of Jerusalem and the casting down of the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. And I want to ask you a question because we referred to this way back before I went to Kiev. Why was Jerusalem made desolate for 70 years? Why did the judgments of God come upon the children of Israel, the children of Judah, and the city of Jerusalem for 70 years? Why? Why was it so? Uh, Yes, Stephen says, because of disobedience. Uh, we're not going to take the time now because we have referred to this in an earlier Bible study. But the Bible says God sent to his people prophet after prophet and gave them warning after warning. And the Bible says they spurned the messages of God and they broke the holy seventh day Sabbath. Let no person say here today that the Sabbath is irrelevant or that it doesn't matter. Perhaps you ought to look at this text. Would you come with me, please? I think it is Second yes, Chronicles 36. Come to Second Chronicles 36, and it gives us the context for the delay. Second Chronicles, uh, chapter 36. I believe it is. And it talks about the desolation of the city of Jerusalem because of the sins of the people. Now verse 15, 2 Chronicles, everybody please get a Bible, everybody please turn to the texts please. Second Chronicles 36 verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messages, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. They passed the boundary line. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. And then if you come down to verse uh, verse, uh, 20, he carried into exile to Babylon, the remnant. So the remnant here is not necessarily a remnant of righteous people, because these were an unrighteous people. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant, who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons, until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested, until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah. Now, Did you notice what it says about the land here? It says that the land enjoyed what, Helen? The Sabbath rest. God said, if you don't keep the seventh day Sabbath, the land is going to keep 70 years of Sabbaths. And the Bible says that because the people failed to see the significance of the holy Sabbath day, judgment came upon the people. Listen to me very carefully. We said this a week or two ago. Moody, the American revivalist, made the statement that when the Sabbath goes, the family goes. And when the family goes, society goes. And when society goes, the nation goes. And the reason that this nation is becoming a hell on earth is largely because people have forgotten to keep the Sabbath because the sabbath tells me that there is a creator god and who made me in his own image when you go to russia and ukraine you see there a debased society a society that forgot god for more than 70 years and a society that went down into darkness When a person gives up the holy seventh day Sabbath, or if he knows the holy seventh day Sabbath and disregards the holy seventh day Sabbath, there is no fate for him but perdition and darkness. And I say to you, do not only hear the word of God, but by the grace of God, obey the word of God. And these texts are written in the Holy Word of God not to entertain us, so that, but so that you and I might escape the judgments of God and be delivered safe in the kingdom of God. You see. Amen. And so Daniel here is praying and the 70 years are coming to a close. And Daniel must think that the 2,300 days are an extension of the 70 weeks. And he says, God, are you not... Finally going to do something, and he starts into praying, which is always a good thing to do. Would you please notice we're going to read the prayer of the prophet. This is one of the great prayers in the Bible. Verse 3. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God. What a great prayer. Who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands? We have sinned and done wrong. When I read the story of Daniel, I find, I do not find recorded against him any known sin. But Daniel, as a true pastor and the prophet of God, is not self righteous, but he identifies himself with the failings and the sins of the people of God. If you are a child of God, you will not be a critic of the stumbling children of God, but you will empathize with them and sympathize with them, as the prophet Daniel did. The mark of a false prophet is that in his self-righteousness, he condemns everybody but himself. And it's hard to live with. Uh, He says, We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. (laughs) He doesn't say, Lord, save me because I'm righteous. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame, the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you've scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we've sinned against you. There are two great truths in the Bible. We spoke about these two great truths last Tuesday night when we spoke on modern day deceptions. And that. Audio tape is available if you want to get it, modern-day deceptions. There are two great truths we are slow to learn. Number one, the evil of human nature. The Bible teaches the doctrine of total depravity. That doesn't mean we can't get worse. But it teaches that man is depraved in every area of his being. And the cry of a child of God is not a cry of self-righteousness saying, look at me because see how good I'm doing. But the cry of a child of God is always the cry of penitence. And that is why Martin Luther, and this statement is often misunderstood by those who do not understand the gospel or understand their own hearts. Martin Luther said, a Christian is always a sinner, always a penitent, always right with God. When Martin Luther said a Christian is always a sinner, what did he mean? Did he mean a high-handed blasphemous sinner? No. Martin Luther meant that we are continually falling short of the glory of God. Every one of us in this church is a sinner. Amen. And unless we understand the sinfulness of our own hearts, we will never understand the, the righteousness of God. And Daniel says, you are righteous, but to us, confusion of face. And so there are two great truths we must understand, that man is far, far worse Than he ever feared to think. We are far worse than we ever feared to think. But God is far better than we ever dared to hope. You see. That's the mercy and the grace of God. You and I will never be saved my friends. By trying to climb up the quaking sides of Mount Sinai. We are saved by falling at the foot of another mountain. Which is called Calvary. We are saved by grace through faith. And the cry of this man who is one of the most righteous men who has ever lived is, I am undone, I am naked, I am unclean, but save me by your mercy. That's the prayer of a Christian. Verse 9, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. What a foolish notion, I tell you, is the idea of sinless perfectionism. That there are people today who are sinless as God is sinless. Some people are so deluded and so blind that they actually believe it. Nobody who knows them believes it. But they themselves believe it. But the doctrine of this book of Daniel is that man is sinful, but God is gracious. This, of course, is the gospel. Who says the gospel is not in the Old Testament? Those who don't read it, I guess. Uh, Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us. For the Lord, our righteous, our God is righteous in everything He does, yet we have not obeyed Him. Listen, my friend, there is an idea that is taught by some. It is called the moral influence theory. It is not a new idea, it's been around for donkey's years, been around for about a thousand years. And the moral influence theory teaches that when Jesus came down to this earth, He got himself killed, the Jews and the Romans killed him, but Jesus on the cross did not die because of the wrath of God against sin. And the moral influence theory which has been condemned by every church council, the church councils of of Rome, the church councils of Protestantism, the church councils of the Adventist church, Every council is condemned because it is so blatantly wrong. The moral influence theory says God does not punish. God is too loving. God does not punish. There are theologians who believe this foolish idea that God does not punish because of his great heart of love he cannot punish. Please explain the text to me. The Bible says, because of sin, the judgments of God came. Please explain to me the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Please explain to me the story of the flood. Please explain to me the lake of fire in the last day. The Bible teaches that God is righteous and God is a God of judgment. And the Bible gives me, and that is the wrath of God, that is the doctrine of God's righteousness, the God punishes sin. But the good news of the gospel is that my sin has been punished in the person of Christ. And Jesus was punished for me. I believe in a righteous God and a God who punishes. And a God who delivers. And a God who comes and stands beside me. Don't you believe this? Mm-hmm. Or say so if you believe it. Just give me some encouragement here. Mm-hmm. Now verse 15. Now O Lord our God who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. This is the call to the covenant keeping God. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Who can say amen to that? God has brought every one of us in this church today out of the land of Egypt because of his great mercy. But the Bible says in spite of his mercy, we have sinned, broken his law. Where did I get up to? Thank you, Stephen. Verse 16. need you down the front here, Steve, so I don't lose my place. Verse 16. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants for your sake. Don't forget it. Why does God save? Hey, didn't you see it? Why does God save? For his sake, because of his mercy. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolations of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous. But because of your great mercy. That is why I love the hymn, Beverly and I, as we drove in today, we were playing the hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Mm -hmm. The only way that you and I will ever make it to the kingdom of God is not because of our righteousness, which is zero, but because of his mercy and his grace. But you'll never want his mercy unless you understand your sin. The greatest of the Protestant reformers were the ones who were the most (laughs) oppressed. Because they struggled against sin and they knew that they were not good enough. Martin Luther contemplated doing away with himself. Unless you have seen the horror of hell because of sin, you will not cry out for the mercy of God. And the problem with most religion in this part of the world today, it is so superficial, it is marshmallow. People want a religion that just says, you can be wealthy, you can be prosperous, and we can all shout hallelujah, and we're all going to heaven, and nobody's going to be lost. That's phony baloney. The Bible teaches the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. And no man will cry out for the mercy of God and the grace of God until he can say, "Lord, have mercy upon me, a great sinner. O oh Lord, listen, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, hear and act for your sake. O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name." What an argument to bring to God. How could God turn away from that prayer? While I was speaking and praying, Confessing my sin. I once met a lady over in Texas. She said she had a problem with some of these texts because when she got down at night to confess her sins, she couldn't think of any that she'd done. She said uh, she didn't know when she was ever converted. She said she never felt ever any time when she needed to be converted. And she could not think of any sins that she could confess or needed to confess. You say, do people exist like this? Yes, they do. What are they called? Would you like to know their name? It is Pharisee. And Phariseeism is the great sin of the Christian church. You want to know why so many churches are so cold, legalistic, harsh on people, why they kick more people out than they win to Christ? it is because they have the religion of the Pharisee. But this man was not smitten with the curse of Pharisaism. He was a man who recognized his sinfulness and that we're all saved by grace. And remember this, there are all... I have another little sub-sermon coming on. There are all different types of sins and sinners. There are respectable sinners who fill the pews week after week. Respectable sinners. And then there are disrespectable sinners. People who are druggies and who are prostitutes and who are bad people. But Jesus said the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before the church people. Amen. Don't know why he's saying amen to that because you folks are church people. <laughs> um, but listen. We quickly condemn the sins of the flesh. We throw people out of the church because of the sins of the flesh. But Jesus said, the sins of the spirit are worse than the sins of the flesh. Mm -hmm. Is it true? Pride, arrogance. These are the sins that cling to the soul of the religious. What do we need? We need a revelation of the love of God and the righteous judge to show us what we really are because no person is ready for the good news until he knows the bad news. And This chapter is a chapter of bad news so that you and I will appreciate the good news that this man receives sinners. That's the story of the gospel. This man receives sinners and goes to eat and wine, uh, dine with them. And the wine he was taking was non-fermented. Now verse 20. Just wanted to cover myself. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, that's the vision of Daniel 8. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I'd seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. We're told that the fastest anything can go in the universe is the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles a second, but apparently Gabriel hadn't read that textbook because he came faster. The man I'd seen in the earlier vision, that's Daniel 8, the 2300 days, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice, instructed me and said to me, Daniel I have now come to give you insight and understanding as soon as you began to pray an answer was given which I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed therefore consider the message and understand the vision now we are going to get into some complex mathematics and I would like you to please concentrate now we have got the flowers here in the centre not to interrupt the continuity of the 2,300 days, but because they look nice. Mm -hmm. Now this line here will represent the 2,300 days. I believe, let me say a few words about the 2,300 days. Daniel 8 verse 14, it says, unto 2,300 evening mornings, then the sanctuary will be justified the Hebrew word is nithstak, which is the niphile form of zadak, impressed, and that means to vindicate or justify. The justification of the sanctuary includes the judgment. And the restoration of truth. Daniel. The context of Daniel 8 is truth on the scaffold, error on the throne. And the question is, how long until God does something? And it says unto 2,300 evening mornings. And I take this from the year-day principle as being years. And there is a stronger reason that I haven't given you why these are years. Because the Bible says in Daniel 8... At other parts of Daniel, that these days extend to the very borders of eternity. We read that last week, I don't know if you remember it, but it says, At the time of the end shall be the vision. That's what it says. Uh, The Bible said, The vision of the days is true, but shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. And Daniel 12 talks about the time of the end in the context of the resurrection. Therefore, we cannot say that the 2300 days were fulfilled in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, as most evangelical scholars say. But it is my firm belief, which I believe will stand the test, that the 2300 days span the centuries. And come down to the very borders of eternity when God is going to do a great work in the world and vindicate his people, vindicate his truth, and then come and set up the kingdom. Now, having said that, we're going to get into it. Now, look at Daniel um, uh, 9, and please look at verse 25. Now, we've got to go through this pretty fast, folks, so you'll just have to do your best. Verse 24, we're reading from the NIV, 77s. Now, the word seven there, uh, a Hebrew scholar will tell you, is exactly the same word for week. And if you look at the footnote, it says 70 weeks. But 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. I want you to think about this because this is one of the great gospel verses in the Old Testament. The Bible says 77 of, of 490 years are decreed and during that time God is going to make atonement for iniquity. God is going to make an end of sin. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up the vision and the most. uh, He's going to seal up the vision and anoint the most holy. And so during this first section of 490 years, which is a partial explanation of the 2,300 years. You say, how do you know? Now this is new to some of you. You say, how do you know that the 77s or the 490 years are a part of the 2,300 years? I will tell you why. This truth was hidden for generations, but was discovered in the last century all around the world. Because Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 are really one vision. Daniel 9 is the explanation of Daniel 8. And when the angel Gabriel comes down to explain to the wandering prophet the vision of the 23 years that extends to the borders of eternity, he starts in with time. Now listen very carefully. When it says in that Bible, and you can go and look this up in a Hebrew Bible if you wish. It says, 490 years are decreed. Now listen to this. The word decree is the Hebrew word kathach. Kathach. And the Hebrew word kathach means to cut off or to amputate. Let me say it again. You can go and pick it up, this point up in a good commentary like the pulpit commentary. It says these 490 years are cut off the pulpit commentary says from time in general that is because the pulpit commentary misses the fact that daniel 8 and daniel 9 are tied together and daniel 9 is the explanation of the 2300 years and so when the prophet says 490 years are cut off or decreed According to the context, they must be cut off from this portion of the first part of the 200, 2,300 years. And so we're going to do this. We cut off the 490 years, which we believe is a portion of the 2,300 years. Because during the 490 years, Messiah is going to come. But at the end of the 2300 years, the kingdom of God is going to come. Now, I want you to look at those, that verse again. Seventy sevens, 70 weeks are cut off, are decreed upon your people. Now, I want you to notice this verse again, because it's one of the great verses of the Bible sevens seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Let me ask you something. You've got to concentrate because this is heavy stuff. How does a person get an end of sin. How does a person get everlasting righteousness? Think about it. I've told you a minute ago, the Bible says we're all sinners. There's none righteous, none of one. But you and I will never get to heaven with 99% righteousness. The only way I can get to heaven is with 100% righteousness. And the Bible says that during this time period. Something is going to happen to make an end of sins. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Hmm. What happened? Hmm. How did it happen? Don't you know? What happened? What happened... During the 490 years, I ask you, what happened during the time period that changed the course of history? Jesus came. On the cross. He was judged for your sin. He was judged for my sin. Jesus, on the cross, had the sin of the world imputed to him. And when he cried out on the cross, it is Finished. He was saying that if I have faith in him as far as the righteous judge is concerned, my sin is finished. It's gone. It's nailed to the cross. My transgression is under the blood. And God gives me not because I am righteous in myself, but because his son is righteous. God gives me as a gift 100% righteousness. That's because of Calvary. Do you get this, folks? Think about it. Do you get this? You ready for the judgment? Brother sitting up there. Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? You and I will never be ready for the coming of the Lord because we are twenty-seven percent righteous or ninety-nine point nine 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 percent righteous. God demands demands one hundred percent righteousness. The Bible says because He's righteous, God can't take anything else. God cannot let me into the kingdom of God if I've almost made it. God lets me into the kingdom of God because Jesus made it for me on the cross. That's what this text is about. This is grand and good news. So here are some great truths we're seeing today. That man is sinful Man is unrighteous, man is unworthy, but there is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. Let me talk to you a little bit about what I spoke on Tuesday night. We spoke about modern day delusions. We're up in Toronto and other places. People are being swept up into, into this holy laugh where people are lying on the floor and they're laughing uncontrollably and they're saying, This is the proof that I'm a child of God because I can speak in ecstasy. Because the pastor knocks me over. This is the proof that he's a child of God. That, my friend is a denial of the gospel. I'm a child of God, not because of something I can do. I'm a child of God because of Calvary. That's the reason. This is the truth. I've had people come to me now. I'm not putting down tongues. I believe in the true gift of tongues. But people have come to me over the years and they say, I'm a child of God because I talk in tongues. No, I'm a child of God because Jesus died for me. Amen. <laughs> because the gift of tongues can be grossly counterfeited, but you can't counterfeit the cross of Jesus. Amen. And so I don't need to be knocked over by my pastor. <laughs> I don't need to roll on the floor. I don't need to laugh hysterically to know that God accepts me because the Bible tells me he died for me. Amen. I don't always feel good, do you always feel good? Hmm? You don't? I get better as the day goes by. By the time I'm at the end of the service I'm running good, but when I get up in the morning and this little dog we've got downstairs is yapping and barking and I've got to go out now at 6 o'clock in the morning and stand out on the wet grass and we stand there for an hour and look at each other. (laughs) I think he's thinks he needs to help me. but We stand there then I feel resentful towards Beverly because I bought the dog for her I say to myself, there's only one way I'll ever be saved. (laughs) Now, we don't always feel good enough. Some days I feel up and some days I feel down. But it doesn't matter how I feel because my Father accepts me when I'm up and He accepts me when I'm down. Mm -hmm. Isn't that good? Now, let me tell you some other things. God even accepts you when you don't look good. Mm Hmm? He accepts you when you've got curlers in your hair. He accepts you when you've got no hair to have curlers in. (laughs) Because we are not saved by any ecstatic experience. I do not need to have an ecstatic experience to convince me that I'm going to glory. I'm going to glory because Jesus said, I'm going to take you there.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You see? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And don't get carried away, folks. You can't take too much of that here in this church. We're Adventists, you know. Don't overdo it. Now, verse 25. No one understand this. Can I tell you something? If you go into a church and everybody is sour and grumpy and critical, don't stay there. Because if you stay there, the odds are you won't change them, but you'll be turned out grumpy and critical and sour too. Mm -hmm. And and if you go into a church where there's no gospel, find a church where the gospel is preached. Don't you think? Yeah, come to my church. (laughs) And put a good offering in the Carter Report envelope. Mm -hmm. Verse 25, and boy there, we're getting great offerings. But the needs are tremendous, friend and we put about 95 percent of what we get straight into evangelism and god is blessing us god is blessing us no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and to build rebuild jerusalem until the anointed one the ruler comes there'll be seven sevens And sixty-two sevens. now this is a grand and a glorious text. The Bible said there would be a decree to restore and to build Jerusalem that had been overthrown by the Babylonians. And the Bible says you go from that decree and we believe the evidence points to 457 which is the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus. And the Bible says, from this decree, there would be a period, right through here, how many sevens? No, it's more than that, Helen, don't let me down, at this crucial time when I've forgotten myself. The Bible says, until the coming of Messiah, the Prince, will be how long? No, not seventy sevens. This is hot California sun, you've been in, I don't know, too long. Come on, Shondor. Thank you, Shondor. Honest gentleman. Sixty-nine sevens. You see that, Bob? Mm-hmm. Is it in your Bible? Do you got from Jack Hayford's church? The same as in our Bible, just the same. Jack would agree with me on this. The Bible says there'd be sixty-nine sevens, and if you multiply that sixty-nine by seven, it comes, as everybody knows already in the church, to four hundred and. 83 days or 483 years from this decree to restore and to build jerusalem until the coming of the messiah would be 483 years and if you add 483 years onto 457 and you do that by taking 457 from 483 and adding on a year did you all get that Mm -hmm. it brings if you don't get it just take it by faith it brings and you can work it out when you get home and get the videotape and if you really can't work it out come and ask me from 457 bc 483 years until the coming of messiah the prince and luke chapter 3 verse 1 says that jesus came and was baptized and started to preach in the 15th year of the reign of tiberius caesar And according to the Jewish method of reckoning the years, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar in Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, when Jesus started his ministry, was 27 AD. So here is an infallible proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Now there are lots of people who are waiting for him to come. There are lots of good people. They're praying for the Messiah to come. I tell you, my friend, He has come. He has come. Jesus is the Lord. Uh, This prophecy written thousands of years ago pinpoints the time when he would start to preach the Word of God. Here we have... Now, if, if a person comes claiming to be Messiah but does not fulfill every word here, then he's a phony... The Bible said from 457, 483 years, then would come Messiah. And Jesus was anointed, started to preach in 27. Uh, Look at verse 25, because I've got to slip through this now. No one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the Messiah, the ruler comes, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens, that's 69 sevens, 483 years. It'll be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, That's the rebuilding of the city. After the 62 sevens, because this time period is made up of seven sevens, 62 and then one seven. After the 62 sevens, after this time period here, the anointed will be cut off and will have nothing. This is talking about Jesus. The anointed will be cut off and will have nothing. What does that mean? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would die a hideous death. He'd be murdered, and so he was. He was cut off. He died for our sins. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who was that? That was Titus. He was the ruler of the people, were the Roman soldiers. The end will come like a flood, because they rejected him. No person can reject the Messiah without the flood of wrath. War will continue until, until the end, and desolations have been decreed, the Bible says. There will only be desolations upon the soul who walks away from Calvary. Never forget it. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Uh, Dispensationalists say that the final uh, week of the 70 weeks is way over here at the end of time. That's a great idea, but it isn't taught in the Bible. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. Verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, one week. In the midst of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Listen carefully. The Bible says you have one week that remains, and uh, there it is, the final week. You've got uh, the uh, 69 weeks here. This whole period is 70. You've got the final week here. And the Bible says in the midst of that week, right in there, right in there, that's 31, the midst of the week, the Bible says the Messiah will put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. My beloved evangelical friends who believe in dispensationalism say that this text is referring to the Antichrist, no my friend, this is referring to the true Christ. And in the midst of that week, that last week, you see they take this week here, and they put it right over at the end of time, it's still to come. But there's no evidence in the Bible for it. It's not true. But the Bible says in the midst of this week, in 31 AD, he would put an end to the sacrifice. How could he put an end to the sacrifice? All the sacrifices pointed to him. There's only one thing that could put an end to the sacrifices of the sanctuary. And that was the sacrifice of the Lamb of God himself. And outside Jerusalem, on Black Friday, 3 o'clock, 31 AD, he hung his head and died. He just cried out, my father, it is finished. He fulfilled all the types and he died to bring in everlasting righteousness. You can't have everlasting righteousness. Now if you add the 2300 years onto 457, it brings you through to a date that I believe is significant. That's 1844. At the end of the 2300 days. In that time the Bible says God will raise up a restoration movement. That is described in Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12, the three angels' messages. Last week we spoke about how the Antichrist would cast down the truth to the ground and change the law of God. How the Antichrist would take away the daily sacrifice, the gospel. How the people of God would go down into their graves with their names covered with infamy. But the Bible says, after, right down at the very end of time, this date brings us to the borders of eternity. The Bible teaches in Daniel 7 that before Jesus comes, there will be what is called a pre-advent judgment. And the world will be called before the throne of God. God's last message will go to the world. We are living on the borders of eternity. You know, we've said this to you many times. But if you study these prophecies, you start after a while to get things straight. If you study these prophecies, you'll start to realize, if you study the Bible and if you don't get too much into church tradition... And we have traditions the same as any other church. We only pretend we don't. But we're no different in many ways. But if you study the Bible, these verses tell you what is important and what is not important. What is important? My relationship to God. That's the one thing. Number two, the preaching of the gospel. It's the only thing that really counts in this sad, sick, old, dying world. And that is the preaching of the gospel. So the Bible says, in the last days, there will come a final message that goes to the world to call out a people of every nation, kindred, tongue, and prepare them for the coming of Christ by the acceptance of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, Let's just sum it up. What do you get out of this chapter? Now we've gone through a lot of stuff. In this chapter, you could talk about these themes for months and years. In fact, it would take an average person his full lifetime to read all the books that have been written on these verses. But what do we get out of it? Number one, that God is righteous. God is not a benevolent grandfather who's half blind and three quarters silly. God is the infinite, righteous, holy God, and He is a God of righteousness, and He punishes sin. And if I hold on to my sin, He'll punish my sin. Either I accept Christ and have my sin punished in Christ, or else i be punished for my own sin. So He's a righteous, holy God, and He punishes sin. Number two, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved not because of my goodness, but by His sheer grace and His sheer mercy. And if I come to him as a humble little child and leave off a lot of the religious palaver, but if I come as a humble little child and stop playing church and kidding myself and others, and if I come to the foot of his cross and say, Lord, I do believe, he says, welcome home. You now stand in the sight of God as though you'd never sinned. And you don't need to worry about the judgment. You're not going to be cast out in the judgment because my righteousness is going to cover you. Mm-hmm. And there's something else we should say. When we come to Christ, people become important. Not institutions. Not buildings. They don't really count. They're going to burn up sooner, sooner the better. What counts? It's the person who sits in the pew. It's the person who walks down the street. It's the little boy or the little girl or the widow. That's what counts. People count because Jesus didn't die for buildings and He didn't buy, die for institutions. He died for people. Amen. Died for you. Died for me. And the most important thing that I can do with my life is to spend it in preaching this gospel. What say if you come to the end of your life And Steve Domenico, who came with us to to Kiev, he said this to me. He said, Pastor Carter, he said, When I go back to Los Angeles, I wonder to myself if I'm just wasting my time. What are we doing with our lives? What have you done for Christ? When you come to the end of your life, is it going to be like a man who puts his hand in a bucket of water and takes it out again? No difference to the flow of the water, no difference to the level. What have you done for Christ? If you and I can lift one sinner from this world and present him blameless before the Father, it will be worth it all. Therefore the most important thing that I can do as a minister, as a Christian, is to share the good news of a Christ who paid the price for my sin and who loves me dearly.